and welcome to Outside World Occultism, the only Toho podcast on the internet, question mark. Prove us wrong. <laughs> I'm Katya, and with me are JT. Hello. Nee. Hi. F. Hello. And Lavander. Hello. So our topic for the day was going to be PC-98, the tone of PC-98 specifically. Did we want to talk a little bit about Wily Beast again first? Because by the time they're hearing this, it'll be less than a week till those come out. We haven't talked about Urumi and Eka that much. Yeah, so before we launch into the PC-98 discussion, I did want to talk about Wabak. Wabak. <laughs> <laughs> the noise that Kutaka makes. It is the noise that she makes. They named the game after her because she's the main character. <laughs> so Eika's like some kind of weird jellyfish baby who is dead. That's all I know about her. She likes rocks. Jelly baby. Yeah, I don't know enough about the Buddhist side of things to know her origin very well. I feel like a lot of stage one bosses sort of end up blurred over in my brain until they get much more of a fandom presence. I know that she's supposedly supposed to be protected by Jizo, so you can have Narumi be her mom if you want. Yeah. That's an interesting connection. I got the impression that she had a really complicated and obscure backstory if you go into the myths. Yeah, she's named after one of those gods. It's like the seven lucky gods or such, right? Yeah, maybe. There's a lot of lucky gods and she, she might not be... Named after one of those particular seven main ones. And Bisu is a familiar name to me, mostly because of Grand Blue Fantasy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's definitely some significance there. It's just like... Blurred, because she just mostly has the... I'm a nice person, but I'm about to start throwing rocks at people. <laughs> and she has plenty of rocks to throw. Yeah, and everyone's bullying her. The one thing I think that we all know that we haven't talked about, because I think we sort of assume everyone knows it, is she's also based on the belief that children who die before their parents are stacking rocks on the uh, shores of the Sanzu River. Why are they doing that? Because they feel repentant for leaving their parents alone, I believe. Oh. Uh -huh. It's a self-declared, at least in Toho, it's self-declared sort of way of taking responsibility for what they see as abandoning their parents. Komachi's talked about it before as well. That's so sad. It's not their fault. They're just baby. Yeah. Guilt complex much? But they're just convinced of their own guilt. Probably because the fact that, mythologically speaking, a lot of those kids end up terrorized by Oni if they stay on the shore for too long. Oh. Yeah, the Oni come by and knock the rocks over. What's like the opposite of survivor's guilt? Dyer's guilt? I don't think there's a term for it applied to living people. <laughs> you can't tell whether dead people are guilty. Unless you're a Yama, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's sort of Aki's job. kind of guilty. So, she makes a comment about not having any bones or something, also. Sorry, if she's related to Ibisu, I think, I'm going off memory here, but Ibisu is a related to Hiruko, who was a god born with a leech-like boneless body to, I think, Izanagi and Izanami, and then thrown into the sea. And then after various adventures, he got bones. I think Ibisu himself lost his bones because of a dragon god following in that other god's footsteps, but I'm not sure. So there's just lots of boneless creatures and people in Ibisu's story. 
Gods, I wish I could face boost my bones. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess that's where she takes the jellyfish design from, because she doesn't really have anything to do with jellyfish or anything like that. It's just to keep up the animal motif for the game, I guess. And she drops Mm. like a little jellyfish token if you beat her the right way, which I don't know the right way, but I have gotten it a couple times. I think the right way is you don't kill any of the spirits. Oh, okay. But she summons. I got it on accident, like, the second time I played the demo. Oh, yeah, it just kind of happened to me on accident, and I was really confused because I had no idea about the tokens, and I was like, what is this jellyfish (laughs) thing? I thought it was an octopus. Maybe it's an octopus. They're both boneless. Is this the Splatoon collab secretly? (laughs) I'm pretty sure it's... I'm pretty sure it's... (laughs) Wow, um... Well, looking forward to it. So, Urumi. Yeah, Urumi. I really love her design. I do too, and I'm super pumped that she specifically fishes for prehistoric fish because I love Dunkleosteus. It's bones! It's like the opposite of Eka. It's smaller bones. <laughs> Describe a Dunkleosteus to me. Uh, I can just post it in the chat i guess we just have to attach images to every episode of the podcast now first it was chickens and now it's ancient bonefish yeah obviously we need to do a visual medium sometime that'd be interesting it's just the youtube version of this podcast it's a blank screen except occasionally we show a picture of some animal that's completely oh it's that thingy i know that fish i love it it's just Oh my god, big chompy. Big chungus. I love it too. It looks like something out of Monster Hunter. Yeah. I love a fish with a good jaw. When something is boneless, this is where all the bones go. Straight to this guy. Naughty children get their bones put in the fish wiggler or something something. (laughs) Where did the whole prehistoric fish thing come from, anyway? It's in her profile. Yeah, but where did soon get the idea? But, like, mythologically... I think it's a riff on just extinct creatures being in Gensokyo, right? Yeah, and also the Sanzu being full of dead things. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. So she, like, sells the fish or something, right? At, like, a market, maybe? Yeah, I think hmm. she might sell them at the Road of Reconsideration or something. So if you're ever in the mood for prehistoric fish, come on down to Urami's Fish and Shack. I really love her, like, vibe. She's really got, like, this older, chill mom vibe. She yeah. just spends all day, like, floating in, like, a inflatable chair in the, like, fishing. Well, I guess it's forever. Just drifting softly down the Sansu River in her funky little plesiosaur-shaped floaty. Yes, exactly. I guess she's kind of dressed for the beach, in a sense. She needs that women-want-me-fish-fear-me hat. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. She definitely has that. I really like that she's supposed to be a non-violent yokai in her profile, and then she goes and tries to drown Marisa as soon as she encounters her. Yeah, but that's just how it works. What if it's just a really big misunderstanding, and she just needed Marisa to hold on to the stone baby for a second? She wasn't going to drown her with it or anything. She was just going to... You can place the baby... Gently on the ground. But it's a baby. It needs to be held. I will take a hammer and fix the baby. (laughs) (laughs) Make it 
get back to normal weight? You can't just set a baby down on the ground, stone or not. It's not alive! You don't know that. Maybe it's like a baby Narumi. Oh god, imagine. <laughs> she used to be a stone baby when she was small. This one actually has like mythology that I think we all know, which is the story of the woman who hands... Can you please hold my baby? And then you... And then it becomes too heavy for you to even move. Yeah. Yeah. I really like the way that that's kind of communicated in her Danmaku. Mm -hmm. The way that they get like bigger and expand as they like crash down on you. Zun is so good at translating character aesthetics and backgrounds into attacks, which I think is something that is really hard to do. I really love Zun's Danmaku because I'm not a huge fan of bullet hell games in general, but... The fact that it contains so much character in just, like, a few hundred bullets. Yeah. <laughs> I know that's not a small amount of bullets. <laughs> it is for a Danmaku game. <laughs> yeah, if you've played, like, oh, uh, God, I don't remember the titles of any other Danmaku games, exposing my true casual the nature. Donpachi? Yeah, yeah, there, that's one. I understand that, like, Mup fans view Toho fans a little bit condescendingly, because Toho is not relative to Shmup's an extraordinarily difficult game. Yeah, even on yeah. Lunatic, there are definitely people who can just memorize their way through it. Yeah. Though I would say that that's more fair difficulty as opposed to something like Mushihime-sama, which makes it impossible to no-bomb through it. <laughs> this is the Dark Souls of shmups. <laughs> There's always a point where the extra difficulty just becomes kind of fake difficulty in a sense. Yes, the Lunatic like... Plus line. Yeah, like adding difficulty with just more bullets instead of anything more creative or more interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I am a really big shmup fan. I've played quite a few shmups. I also have a gigantic backlog of shmups on my Steam that I still need to get through, like Hellsinker and a couple others. I'm not very good at shmups, first of all, so... None of us are. I haven't cleared like any of them, basically, but I have continued my way through them. But yeah, like, Toho will just always be my favorite just because the sheer originality of its setting compared to the hundreds of millions of games where you are a near identical spaceship fighter plane whatever and you shoot at tanks on the ground or whatever it's all the same and it's fun but toho really is just super unique in that regard the characters are a lot more interesting and dynamic than they are in most shmup games to hook us back around it's also something that's represented very well in gameplay yeah exactly whereas in a lot of shmups even in sort of more character-driven rather than spaceship fight ones like a lot of the Orange Juice games, you don't necessarily get the translation of characterization into gameplay the way that you do in Toho. Yeah. yeah. Uh, one, one of the things that Zun talks about, there was like an interview with him about designing characters and stuff like that. A lot of times the first thing he'll do is he'll just pick a character concept and then he will build the music around them and then that influences their design and the stage design and all of their bullet patterns and all of that. It's, it's something that he really puts a lot of thought into and builds the whole game around and it really shines through. Zun's a composer first and... A game designer second, and I feel like that really honestly helps with expressing character. Yeah. You see that in sort of the... It's weird to call him the Western Zune, <laughs> but he sort of is, which is Toby Fox. Yeah. Yeah. He's son of Zune. He's definitely gotten the same amount of popularity. It's, it's worth noting that 
Toby Fox is like heavily, heavily inspired by Zoon. Yeah. If you've seen the interview with Toby Fox, Zoon, and there was someone else, but I don't remember uh, who they... No, I think it was just the two of them. Yeah, they're Was it just the two of them? I thought they had maybe the cave story guy or something, but... Yes. I think they had a third person. They might have. It's funny to watch how Toby interacts with Zoon. (laughs) Yeah, it's good. Also, shout out to Toby Fox. Thank you for saving the Western Toho fandom by getting Zun to finally put the games on Steam. Yes, thank you mm. so much, Mr. Thank you, Toby. Because Mr. Fox. I actually forgot about that whole thing. Yeah, Mr. The Fantastic Mr. Fox. <laughs> yeah, that's something that I feel like Western Toho fandom has been pushing for for a really long time. Like even back in the days of Gensokyo.org. Oh, my God. girlfriend told me that she was a translator for Gensokyo.org back then. She told me that that was one of their big things. They were trying to get Zun to release the games in the West somehow. And it just kind of never happened until just recently. Yeah, and then we ended up with Antonomy of Common Flowers with a bad English translation. Yeah, the English translation's a little unfortunate. Um, yeah, that's lobbying for you, I guess. I feel like that's probably more... A fault on Tassofro's part. Yeah, it's not Zun's fault because Zun specifically wanted to wait till he knew that he was getting stuff correct. Yeah. They had like a friend of the team doing the English translation. Well, thankfully, the bad translation is not the only one we have because there's like an amazingly dedicated group of translators um, who translate like literally everything for free the toho patch center is so amazing so we were talking a little bit earlier about personality as displayed through attack patterns and that seems pretty relevant to pc 98 as a segue oh yeah yeah actually it's been like that since Mm -hmm. highly responsive to prayers yeah which is really something considering that you get like three colors for danmaku if you're making a PC-98 game mm-hmm. with a decent background. Yeah. yeah. I think Zune doesn't get enough credit for how he handles the minimalist design side of things. A lot of focus is sort of on the Windows games, and fair enough, they're the higher profile games, they're more developed, but they don't have that limited set of tools. And I think you learn a lot about a developer from how they work in a... Not necessarily demo scene sense, but limited technical environment. The PC-98, it's an office computer. It is not meant for games. And the majority of the games on there are text-based. And not safe for talking about on this podcast, but that's another ball of worms altogether. (laughs) (laughs) Ball of worms? And part of that's just the nature of... PC gaming in Japan versus PC gaming in the West. Yeah. In what way? The Japanese PC scene took a lot longer to standardize. In the West, it was always, there was a little bit with like your Tandies and all that sort of weird home computers. But even by the 90s, it was pretty much, it was Apple or Intel. The Japanese home computer scene didn't get quite so standardized. So it was a lot of who's developing for what specific platform there wasn't as much money going into pc gaming versus console gaming pcs were also less powerful because they just weren't as 
necessary. PC gaming drove a huge part of the Western and also Japanese, but in terms of computer development was heavily driven by gaming. Like the first petaflop supercomputer in the world was built essentially out of PlayStation graphics cards. (laughs) That's just how it is sometimes. The home PC scene in the West was very gaming heavy, whereas in Japan, console gaming was much more, and still is, along with handheld nowadays, much more dominant than on PC. So PC gaming became the territory of hobbyists, because it's easier to develop for, and companies that might not get a license from Nintendo or Sony. Why did Sony end up developing for such a random computer anyway? Was it just because it was the only one he had? It was his college hobby project. Yeah, he was in a... I don't know enough about the Japanese collegiate system to call it a student org like we have in the US, but there was like a shmup development group at his school. It was basically a club. Like, not in the same sense as drama club that you might have in a school in the United States. It was just like the kind of club where... Were you not meeting in a school, you might have a clubhouse. A student org type thing, right? Which I'm sure all of us have been in in one or another at some point. Shout out to every college tabletop gaming club to ever exist. (laughs) (laughs) You guys do more for the hobby than most publishers, so... So Zun was like 18 or 19 when he first made Toho. So yeah, Toho's been around for a very long time, which is very amazing to think about, honestly. Yeah. Almost as long as I've been alive. I think it's almost older than my brother. Imagine growing up your whole life with Toho. Such a neat concept. I mean, there are kids doing that now, too. It's easy to forget when you look at the Western fandom, but it is actually pretty big with the youth in Japan, too. Yeah, it's actually not that much of a weird otaku thing there as it is here and thank god for that honestly i've heard that like reimu and cherno are like instantly recognizable to children almost on the same level as pikachu which is saying something yeah that's pretty crazy um i think here there's more younger people getting involved too especially with double dealing character and as part of sort of the emergence of more and more cleaner otaku circles that aren't like otaku otaku they're just like people who You can just say lesbians. (laughs) (laughs) There's some gay dudes. (laughs) All right. There's been a sort of emerging Toho fandom in recent years that's a lot different from the old Toho fandom in the West, which is mostly just... Gross. We've spoken about them at length, I think. Yeah, just memes being repeated ad nauseum in YouTube comments sections on Toho music. We probably want to get on to our actual topic now. Yeah, that would probably be great. The tone of PC-98 is really interesting because it's wildly different from modern Toho games. Honestly, even like the first couple of Windows games are kind of like that. It's a lot more mysterious. You are exploring this big world and you have no idea about anything that is happening in it, but you have some orbs, so go ahead. Yeah. It's also, I think much more lighthearted. Definitely. And I'd say this holds true through about halfway through Perfect Cherry Blossom or so. And then Yuyuko comes in. I think Yomu and Yuyuko are sort of the earliest tonal turning point, and you feel it a lot more with Imperishable Night and the broader Bogetsu show. I think it's a really nice tonal thing because 
if you go by, like, what would make sense, then it's the two protagonists moving on from being, like, 12 to being in their late teens. Yeah. So, of course, yeah. they'd be gaining more knowledge of the world and being like, ah, this isn't as fun of a job anyway, is it? PC-98 Rimu is so happy. She's She just loves her job. She just doesn't like training. And then you get Imperishable Night Rimu, and she does not want to do anything. She's just a big grouch. Having to fight a bunch of monsters all the time will do that to you. So this is an opportunity to talk about building off the age topic from last time. My own age headcanons, which are like PC-98, their children, probably under 13. The early Windows games are them going through their teens. Rainbow and Marisa specifically. I mean, not literally every single Toho character. <laughs> <laughs> every single Toho character yeah. is legally bound to be 15 during her... Perfect cherry blossom. Yeah. <laughs> Shamemaru Aya has been 17 for, you know, 1,200 years. Thank you for using Aya. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, each time that the Windows games go up in resolution, I would say, that's another sort of stage of life for the protagonists. Well, like Mountain of Faith, that's like late teens. Yeah, late teens to maybe 20 years old, but Sanai starts as 17, so you wouldn't think they'd be that much older than her. Maybe only by a couple mm. years. I can't see Rebu and Marisa being more than like two years older than, than Sanai. Yeah, exactly. They fall into a peer group pretty easily, and even in your teen, there's a big difference between two years and four years. Yeah, you wouldn't just end up befriending somebody who was freshman in high school if you were entering college. Yeah. yeah. Bohemian Archive gives you really specific dates for a lot of the events yeah. that tell us that, for example, EOSD actually happened in 2002, and Imperishable Night was like a year or two afterwards. So if you go from there, then you get a, you know, they're literally 17 years older now than they were then. Obviously, it doesn't go really one-to-one -one because I don't think they're, they're going to keep aging in my head or in canon into like the in highly responsive to prayers that's to me Ramu's first night on the job basically yeah it's just her luck to go to hell I, although admittedly like 90 percent of my highly responsive to prayers egg cannons are because of t7's time will tell which is an absolute <laughs> banger uh, it is yeah go listen to it now pause this podcast <laughs> Another link to put at the bottom of the description. <laughs> Go buy some uh, Toho Eurobeat albums, <laughs> listeners to this podcast, and then never listen to us again. Because <laughs> you're too busy. You're too busy with A1's Liquid Slap. God, it really is just absolutely incredible how much the sheer volume of music. And it's all good, almost except for Iosis. <laughs> there's a there's a bit of a nostalgia factor for that though i mean the the instrumental stuff is great iss's rock stuff is great yeah iss has done stuff that isn't bubbly meme remixes that's like actually good yeah but i just don't like their rock because it seems pretty flat to me invalid the only reason i like iss is just the sheer nostalgia factor yeah, it's a big yeah. one. Being a teenager yeah. and listening to, like, Iosis songs. That's how so many people got into Toho. Though speaking of yeah. songs you listen to when a teenager, I will die on this hill. Bad Apple still slaps. Oh, yeah, definitely. It does! Yeah. Both the original and the Elstromera Records mm -hmm. remix, they slap. Every remix <laughs> of Bad Apple slaps. Yeah. It's good. 
it's should we go through the games in order because otherwise i feel like this is going to be the lotus land story episode (laughs) (laughs) yeah we definitely should go through the games in order if only because mima is actually a super interesting character if you throw away the memes yeah true true (laughs) and uh she does have her first appearance in highly responsive which i think is kind of significant yeah Remus first night on the job and she encounters a vengeful spirit that absolutely hates the Hakurei clan. What could this say, like, setting-wise about how the Hakurei clan has acted in the past? Hmm. And I use clan as more of a group signifier because I personally don't think that the Shrine Maidens are chosen by blood. I think they're chosen by blood strictly, but in, like, the unregulated inheritance sense. Like, if you're in Central Asia and you need a descendant of Genghis Khan, you're not going to be needing to go too far, statistically. So I think there is a heritable element, but I also think that that's used as an excuse to pick out whoever whoever who does the choosing wants. Yeah, it's like, oh, this person is a descendant of the Hakurais. Of course we can pick them to take away from their family and work a dangerous job forever. There's like an Ur maiden some 1,000 years ago. My own headcanon on this is that, you know, we never see Rayma's family and never really talk about them. And there's no real indication about like her having a family or where they're from, or even if there's a grave plot or anything like that in Gensokyo for the Hakurei family. So I personally believe that there is actually a perfectly ordinary Hakurei family in the outside world. And that is where the Shrine Maidens come from. They just kind of get taken away and raised in Gensokyo. That's an interesting one. Child disappearing epidemic for the Hakurai family. Yeah, and maybe there's some kind of agreement or historical reason why somebody, Yukari probably, shows up and takes a child every couple of decades. Personally, like, I tie that in with Gensokyo's past and, like, the violence of the era before the spell card rules. Yeah, like, the era before spell card rules was... is It's interesting because all we get to see is basically yokai that are taking it easy on our protagonists. Hmm. Yeah, and the Hakurei clan was, at some point, very devoted to their job of yokai extermination. And that was a duty that they took seriously. And then how did they end up? Servants to a yokai? We just don't know. Yeah, exactly. At some point, something had to happen to corrupt the shrine into what it is today, which is an enforcer for the yokai status quo in Gensokyo. If you're approaching this from the perspective of someone who is a yokai exterminator by profession, rather than by... If it's viewed as the Hakure are yokai fighters and they're pragmatic about it, you don't need a yokai exterminator if there's no yokai. And so they would be facing the same sort of crisis of purpose that yokai would have been facing in the late 19th century. Yeah, I imagine that that would be a part of it, except if they were actually devoted to their jobs, they could just obtain another way to gain a livelihood. If they were devoted to ridding the world of yokai, wouldn't they be glad to be ridding the world of yokai? Yeah. I don't think they're devoted to ridding the world of yokai. I think they're people who have grown accustomed to living and working in a certain way and are now faced with that method no longer being relevant. If you're in that position and you're like Coopers, who were just completely decimated by whatever machine people use to make barrels these days, 
But if you're in a position of influence, like being the leaders of a shrine in a small village or a music industry executive or any of these other things, you, you leverage that power to keep your own position alive. And I think I could easily see an older Hakurei being, I am the Hakurei Shrine Maiden, I fight yokai, it's what I do. I don't want to learn another job. I think another job is beneath me. I think that really depends on the attitude of the Shrine Maidens and probably priests too of the time. Yes, and obviously this is pure, pure conjecture, but I think that it could happen that, especially because the Hakurei Shrine's association with yokai is still a secret, that somewhere along the lines, they crossed the picket line, they met with yokai Vince McMahon and set up sort of the new status quo, the it's not fake necessarily, even if I make wrestling <laughs> jokes, but it's fabricated they got involved with we need to keep the fight alive pre-spellcard rules there were definitely yokai that took advantage of this but this also explains why they're not just killing remu outright early because there's some mm. level of you know uh kefabe on their end well i mean there's also the fact that the hakurei shrine maiden is pretty important to Gensokyo's upkeep as a whole, besides the whole yokai extermination thing, and that Yukari would get pissed off at you if you killed her, but, you know. I think, yeah. I think where the pro-wrestling metaphor agreement thing falls apart for me personally is the fact that the Hakuris clearly didn't get a good deal out of this. They have no family to speak of, it's just one shrine maiden. Their shrine is basically completely defunct at this point. Nobody believes in the god. Yeah, nobody goes there, nobody leaves donations. Remo's constantly on the verge of starvation. Um. And again, this is <laughs> 150 years after the barrier goes up, though. I'm essentially just presenting a theory as for what they could have done to begin that status quo. I just think that it's more interesting for them to have gotten tricked into it narratively, because, for example, somebody like Okina could make it seem like a very sweet deal, considering she's also a god. Yeah. True, true. I think that the state of the Hakurei Shrine in Gensokyo is definitely a contrivance of the yokai who are invested in having power. I think I actually brings that somewhat up in Bohemian Archive, that it's been like this for a long time. Yeah. yeah. I think that they definitely were the losers in whatever arrangement there is. Whether it's, you know, a deliberate or being tricked into it, I think the yokai came out on top for sure. Yeah, I mean, I don't disagree that maybe the Hakurei family agreed to this on some level, but I personally believe that it was something that they had no choice but to accept as a result of being, like, soundly defeated by the creators of Kensokyo. Yeah, I don't believe the Hakurei family are scabs. <laughs> <laughs> So this is a lot of speculation about a background, but... So where we were in... We were in Mima. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this is gonna be the Mima and Yuka show for most of the episode, yeah. I think. Yeah. And maybe Shinky, but Shinky's just really mom. Mystic Square will have its own sort of coda, but that's not really a thread through PC-98 nearly as much. 
Yeah, I think that the first three PC-98 games are sort of the embodiment of Scarlet Devil of the PC-98 games. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're not very connected, especially Phantasmagoria of Dim Dream. Which like, is just nonsense. Local woman tries to blow Gensokyo up with a nuke. I love <laughs> the cast of Phantasmagoria of Dim Dream. I think there's interesting things you can do with them. but They would be amazing if they ended up in another game. Definitely. But they didn't. There needed to be a... Plot? Immaterial and missing power sort of situation in the PC-98 to flesh out a lot of the early characters. And it's telling that the only characters from the first three games that have any presence is Raymu, Marisa, and Mima. Yeah. Who show up in the later games. Yeah. I know there's some very dedicated Yumemi Okazaki fans out there. Shout out to them. Me, but... I'm a big Yumemi fan. <laughs> Shout out to you. <laughs> but she's really not that relevant. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Even if she is cool. Yeah, I mean, a lot of them have, like, people really dedicated to just drawing them and, I guess, writing about them, even though there's, like, one appearance and not much to go on. Yeah. It's because they have very interesting concepts. Also, Tohos are like Pokemon. <laughs> all of them are someone's favorite. Gotta draw them all. Something that is important to talk about with regards to PC-98 is that its canonicity works like this. Whatever is consistent with Windows games, that's all canon. Which means almost everything except for Phantasmagoria of Dim Dream. The weird nonsense, like, yeah, like like Phantasmagoria of Dim Dream and just any other inconsistent weirdness or like aesthetic choices and setting choices, you can just throw those out and not worry about it too much. Otherwise, you can sort of treat the games as canon. Yeah. And I think that applies a lot more to... Lotus Line Story and Mystic Square. Definitely. With, with the exception of, like, Story of Eastern Wonderland is basically how Reimu met Marisa. And also Eve is there. It, I do find it funny that the main villain isn't the main villain, though. As fond as I am of Rikako and Yumemi as character concepts and as, like, things you could do with them, I think they have an interesting contrast. And as anyone who's talked to me about any Toho pairing knows, any characters who have some obvious foil nature to their dy dynamic is sort of my catnip. Yeah. They're not a huge important part. Zun wanted to make a game with a bunch of characters and he didn't have a bunch of characters yet. Exactly. He just kind of threw some stuff together and that's what emerged. Yeah. So Yumemi and Rikako have interesting potential as vessels to explore Gensokyo from a scientific perspective, but the thing about them is that now there are characters who are better suited to be that sort of lens. The Morius. Yeah, and obviously their present just doesn't really feed into the series as a whole anymore. And like the whole theme of like science versus magic, whatever, like none of that's really that relevant anymore. And I think this is the distinction that I've pissed a lot of people off with. I draw the line between whether I like something, whether I think something is, you know, worth having and whether I think something is relevant. We're way out of the <laughs> relevant zone. Yeah. Yeah. And honestly, I think the relevant zone is pretty much... A Imperishable Night is the earliest point of the relevant zone. Yeah, Imperishable Night and maybe Yomu and Yuyuka, if you want to stretch it. But they're in Imperishable Night. No, I mean, like, but their story in Perfect Cherry Blossom. Yeah, the latter half of Perfect Cherry Blossom, if we're allowing a cutoff at a specific stage, it would be after Yomu. Yeah, basically the PC-98 games are kind of fun backstory. Something that does confuse me a little bit is there's only two characters, not counting Raymond and Marisa, of course, who survived the transition from PC-98 to Windows, and that is Alice and Yuka. 
there are a lot of characters I feel like who either could have or should have maybe made a comeback. There's some characters are clearly inspired by PC-98 characters. Orange and Mailing are basically identical in appearance, but they are not the same character. I think you have a problem with that with Windows characters too. You get Gensokyo compendium file on this stage one boss and then or like even the stage three boss and then they just disappear. Yeah. If you're not in the fighting game, you're out of luck. That's just kind of the format of the series, I guess. We do have print works nowadays, and that is another opportunity for a lot of the more minor Windows characters to even just make a simple cameo, which happens quite a lot. I want a Kodohime cameo. I mean, imagine if like a PC-98 actually had like a random cameo in the back of a festival scene or something. <laughs> a lot of people would throw a fit. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine a lot of heads exploding if that happened. <laughs> Shinki got a nice reference in Byakuren. That sort of basically confirms that she's still out there somewhere. You know what would be the best reference to BC-98 you can make? What's that? Having the stage one boss of a new game being orange after she finally unsealed herself from, like, the rock. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> that would explode my head. Yeah, that's <laughs> an extremely big-brained take. You mentioned, like, Byakuren, and isn't, like, the fact that Raymond and Marisa aren't really all that faced about entering Makai kind of another piece of evidence that they've been there before? And that Sanai is yeah. faced about entering Makai. Does anyone have anything to say about the first three games that sort of isn't... I do. Okay, go ahead. So, Story of Eastern Wonderland is, you know, the first Don Maku shooter because highly responsive to prayers was like a weird breakout thing. You know, it sort of establishes how Raymond and Marisa meet, and Marisa has red hair on that one for no reason. Probably because it's her natural hair color. Yeah. <laughs> Considering yeah. that she can't actually naturally have blonde hair. Why not? Because she's Japanese. I guess that's true. She's Japanese from the 19th century in particular, which is like right at the end of the Sakoku period. Brown hair is always dominant over blonde hair, so it's pretty much impossible, even nowadays. She could have two parents with the recessive gene. But in the 19th century, that would be... I was seriously having this conversation in the series that also has purple and white hair. Well, let's not worry about that. So I think she just wants to be blonde because... It's cool. Either that, or she accidentally bleached her hair during a science experiment and decided it looked cool. Or it's just never gonna change now. Like, she accidentally blew a mysterious magic vial up in her face, and now she's just blonde forever. There's there's a lot of fun stuff you can do with that. I've always seen fan content about it, saying that she would dye her hair red instead of the other way around, but this is a more interesting take, I feel like. Yeah. Yeah. I think they do that because... Red hair is less common in the West. Yeah. Also, there's something to be mentioned for PC-98 having a much more limited color palette. Because everyone like makes a big deal of, why isn't Raymu's hair purple in Windows? Because that's how black hair was represented yeah. in the PC-98 yeah. games, shown by the fact it's not that, that hard. <laughs> she has black hair in Shuso Gyoku. 
I think that Raymond's hair color is the same color that a black cat has for fur because when the sunlight hits it, it seems kind of brownish reddish and I think that just kind of fits Raymond perfectly and also covers like why is her hair brown sometimes and black other times. It's, it's the same hair color, it's just... That's like pretty normal for Asian black hair. I also have things to say about Story of Eastern Wonderland because the Miyama and Marisa dynamic is just extremely good. No, true, true. That is the, the time we see them interacting, isn't it? Well, besides Phantasmagoria of Dim Dream. Yeah. Which just... Doesn't count. Marisa <laughs> is enamored with Mima. Okay, so you run away from your garbage dad, and then you get adopted by a vengeful spirit, which is probably one of the more terrifying things you could run into in the woods of Gensokyo, whether you're human or yokai. Yeah. And this vengeful spirit teaches you everything you wanted to learn. Eventually, you learn that she's kind of a disaster who has too many unfinished grudges, but that's okay because you still care about her and she's your guardian. She's the one who's taking care of you for so long. Yeah, I really wish we knew more about Mima's backstory. I don't think we're ever going to get Mima's backstory with, with Marisa. <laughs> no, we're not, but... Never say never. <laughs> it's such great fan speculation because it hints at a dark path to the Hakurei, and it's very cool. Yeah, it's so good. I think it's really interesting that... So the first time we see Mima, she doesn't have any dialogue or anything. She's just a person you have to fight in highly responsive prayers. She has a knife. Um, she has a sailor suit. Yeah, that's one of those things that's just like completely inconsistent with Toho as it would be today. Highly responsive to prayers is a weird game. Yeah, just in Yeah, general. it really is. I do like that it's our first foray into hell and the backgrounds give me some really neat vibes, but... It's really the least relevant that it could possibly be while still having some aspect of canonicity. Yeah, I will say one thing about Highly Responsive to Prayers, and that is Eternal Shrine Maiden is, in my opinion, the best song in all of Toho. It's like the very first song you hear when you actually enter the game and start playing. It sort of sets the tone for everything else. It was one of the first songs that Zun ever made, and he still like has a very special place in his heart for it. He's talked about that, and it's just got its very nice energy to it. It's very melancholy. Then you also, on one of the routes, I think it's the Hell Route, the last area is also Eternal Shrine Maiden playing, and I'm, I'm a person who gets very easily hyped up by stuff like that. The fact that the... Makai route has two final bosses would make you think that it's the route that Reimu actually went, finally. But what if she did that first and then went to hell second and then was just feeling more secure in herself by the end and that's why Eternal Shrine Maiden is playing? Yeah, I would agree with that, honestly. It's definitely like a more fitting sort of ending mm -hmm. for that game. That song just has a ton of emotional weight for me and it's literally my favorite song in all of Toho. This reminded me that obviously PC-98 has this weird mix of even more random humor than the early Windows games. Also kind of like the Windows games. It has these occasional references to kind of more explicit violence than the rest of the series. Obviously the fan idea that before the spell card rules everyone in PC-98 was just outright killing each other which is... The only person who might have possibly died was Yuki and Mai on Mima's route of Mystic Square and Zoom confirmed that they didn't so it's fine. Yeah. 
Yeah, so it's mostly just the weird, like, I guess it's kind of edgelordy sometimes. Yeah, it's not that deep. I think it's more like esports banter than <laughs> villain monologues. Moving away from yeah. the wrestling metaphors. <laughs> Same shit, really. <laughs> yeah, they're talking trash. No one actually threatens violence on each other as much in PC98, I've noticed. Like, the one act of actual violence we do see is genuinely carried out. Thanks, Raymu, for your stupid feeling. <laughs> the only other times that had people threatening to kill each other, they've been saying, oh, don't worry, it was just a joke. There's the occasional random thing like Yuyuko eating Mistia or whatever, but that's also easy to put down as a joke. It's definitely lighthearted. Just a prank. <laughs> Early Windows has a lot of the same sort of mood with its joking. Like, it, Sakuya allegedly dies in one of their routes, too. I think it's Reimu's in EOSD. Yeah, but I also think mm. that Windows makes more explicit references to violence, at least early Windows, because it's obvious that there isn't actually going to be that sort of violence because of the spell card rules, whereas in PC-98 you need to be, oh, it was a joke, in case you actually get your opponents scared and fighting for their life. Back when EOSD was being made, had soon actually thought about the spell card rules yet. We obviously, from a metagame perspective, we can you know, say that, oh, they're using the spell guard rules, but it, I don't think it's necessarily... I believe they're mentioned in the um, prologue TXT files of EOSD. They're the first one okay. with actual named attacks, yep. rather than just yeah. background changes. I kind of thought it was, like, PCB for some reason. No, that was just... That was just the 13th Shrine Maiden saying that Gensokyo was... A paradise, which is very weird and it seems really doctored to me for some reason, but... Yeah, the prologue.txt is, I think, Zun's first experiment in the unreliable narrator. Yeah, which is really, really neat. Another thing to remember is that for most of early Toho, up to probably Mountain of Faith, I would say, Zun was just kind of coming up with stuff and just throwing stuff at the wall and not really thinking too hard about what stuck or what didn't and just iterating with each new game and not necessarily preserving the integrity of the canon or whatever. And he said that in the interview about um, Perfect Memento was that it wasn't until he was compiling Perfect Memento that he realized he'd been building a setting. Yeah. And that he realized that <laughs> the characters actually had life of their own and weren't props. Oh, yeah. Wait, my characters have a lore? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's really something, to be honest. Anyway, we're way off track and we're like an hour into the podcast. This can be a long one, it's fine. To loop things back around, so Story of Eastern Wonderland, we've talked about really going forward from that, in many ways, it's the first Toho game, but what comes out of that is the Mimer and Marisa relationship, Reimu first meeting Marisa. I think it's much more of a Marisa game definitely, than anything else. If Highly Responsive to Prayers is what we have to sort of piecemeal assemble the secret origin of Reimu out of, Story of Eastern Wonderland tells us a lot more explicitly about where Marisa came from. 
Yeah, and then Cola helped make that more explicit because it compounds that rather than contradicts it. Yeah. Yeah. Like So I think it was definitely intentional there, even if it was just throwing stuff at the wall and seeing what stuck. So definitely remember he wrote Mima and Maurice's relationship when he was writing Cola and talking about Maurice's backstory, where she ran away from home and doesn't talk to her uh, family and doesn't speak of her father. It was definitely at least somewhat intentionally written to match up with the events of PC-98. Why there's a 12-year-old floating around on a flower working for an evil spirit. Yeah, exactly. In Story of Eastern Wonderland, is Marisa the fourth boss? Yeah, she's the fourth boss, but there's only five stages. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Because actually, Rika is the true villain of the game, so you have to go the extra stage to win. (laughs) Which is actually Okina Core. That is very Okina Core. Mima is not the cause of the incident in any of the games that she appears in. She's just there and she hates Remu. I don't think she actually hates Remu that much because her banter in Dim Dream is just generally pretty friendly. And then... What she is isn't this vicious enemy of the Hakurei clan. She is the Hakurei family's shonen rival archetype. She's the annoyance. I don't know if I would say that. I think that it's just that... Raymu naturally makes people want to be a friend. I always got like a Team Rocket vibe. <laughs> um, I, I could definitely see that. Mima isn't quite Sasuke, but she's close. <laughs> I think the distinction between her and the sort of classic shonen archetype is she is also older. And she also does have an actual probable reason to do this, considering, well, she's a vengeful spirit and those generally have died horribly. Yeah, she definitely has some indefinite beef with the family, but she also isn't seeking the trouble in of herself. Yeah, she's just like, if I can beat up a Hakurei on my way to finding out whatever the heck is going on with this incident, that's cool. That's fine. Yeah. Because she actually likes to find out what's going on, as you can see in Mystic Square. She's just like, super curious. That's true. And super flirtatious. (laughs) Yeah, also true. Marisa actually takes after her a lot in later games. Yeah, Marisa, once she matures, is very Mima-like. Yeah. Which is also probably why we haven't seen Mima show up so much, because Marisa's basically taken her role as mature-ish woman who still has pettiness around her and is very curious and very gay. There we go. Yeah. I think she's learned some of the lessons that Mima didn't as well. Yeah, like you can let things go, it's okay. Though actually, that Mima probably isn't physically capable of learning those lessons owing to the fact that her existence is predicated on vengeance. Yeah. yeah. So what happened to Mima anyway? Where did she go? Why isn't she coming back? She's in Chicago. <laughs> Mima found alive in Miami. She's trapped on the cover of one of Aku's CD collection. She was but sealed in there by Remo. I think she's probably just... She might have passed on due to losing her grudge, but that doesn't seem very Mima-like. I think she's probably just exploring other realms, because she's not bound to get Sokyo. I personally am fond of the headcanon that after Mystic Square, she just took charge of a big chunk of Makai because no one could stop her, and she's just been hanging out there as her base. I think that 
that would probably be very hardcore. She sometimes visits to bother the Shrine Maiden, but she doesn't show up in the mm. mainline games because she's not that much of a troublemaker anymore. If you think about it, the whole rival dynamic would be a good way to maintain your grudge without having to actually kill anyone. Kind of like the spell card rules in a nutshell. Can you imagine Mima just showing up in a print work? It's never treated with like any fanfare or anything. She's just there and she's harassing Remu as usual. And then she disappears again for another 20 years. <laughs> she just disappears. And then right after she leaves the scene, Sane walks in and is like, were you talking to someone? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's exactly what's going to happen. I guess, do we want to do Lotus Line Story now? Let's talk about Lotus Line Story. It's hard for me to pick between Lotus Line Story and Mystic Square as my favorite PC-98 game. I think Mystic Square does a lot more interesting setting things. Mystic Square is a lot more polished. Yeah, it's... That's why I like Lotus Line Story more, because I just... Duca. Yeah. Lotus Line Story is... The first time the name Gensokyo is used in any capacity. I know this sounds very like a certain someone, but I just really love Gensokyo. <laughs> it's just a lovely <laughs> place, <laughs> setting-wise. <laughs> Gensokyo truly is a paradise. For you, Yeah, it's kind of lovely, like the Hotel California kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's where Mima is. <laughs> she can never leave thing that really determines whether Lotus Land Story or Mystic Square is your favorite PC-98 game is whether you are a Mima fan or a Yuka fan, um, <laughs> or I suppose a Raymari fan, which is where my loyalties lie with Lotus Land Story. Stage 4 said gay right. The cover is Marisa literally sleeping on Raymu's lap. Oh yeah, we get a reference to the PC-98 games in Forbidden Scrollery, don't we? That's more evidence for them. Do we? In stage four, Marisa, Marisa says, well, rest in peace, Reimu, in oh, almost true. the exact same way that Reimu does to her in Forbidden Scrollery when she gets Kosuzu'd. God, they, they love that running gag so much, and nobody else thinks it's funny around them, but they do. It's just one of those things that has, like, so much history for them. I think it's funny. Yeah, but we're not the people of Gensokyo. I think Lotus Land Story is technically the one of the best soundtracks in Toho. It's very limited by the PC-98. Oh yeah, definitely. Sleeping Terror, absolute banger. All of Yuka's themes slap in different ways, which... I like the unused yeah. inanimate dream. Oh yeah, that's a good one. I have a huge soft spot for Sleeping Terror because it was one of the first songs that I heard back when I didn't even know what it was supposed to be. I love Sleeping Terror so much. It's just... The arpeggios. It's so yokai-like. Yeah. I love it. It's good. Perdition Crisis gets sort of overlooked because Bad Apple is the iconic Ellie song, even though it's her stage theme. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not like she has a mid-boss that's anything but yeah. a weird mirror. The PC-98 mid-bosses are very funny. <laughs> There's a lot more variety there. They're a lot more Diosei-esque, too. That is a really big case for EOSD being more thematically like a PC-98 game because it has the unnamed mid-bosses. Yep. Whereas even though Lily White is the least relevant person in the world, <laughs> Don't she say still that. has a name. <laughs> <laughs> She's relevant in my heart. <laughs> She's relevant in about seven months. <laughs> 
one of the things PCB does is that it's the point where everyone starts being developed, whereas even in EOSD, even Rumia is basically a PC-98 stage one boss. In terms of similarity to Orange, she is off the charts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when people are asking someone to expand on Rumia's story, he... She doesn't have one. She's just a yokai. Sometimes you're just a person. Mm. Yeah. And that's fine. I don't think that I'm going to end up doing anything massively world-changing like a stage 6 boss, and that's okay. There are Rumias in this world. <laughs> I wonder how much Rumia fanart exists because someone started drawing all the bosses in order and got bored after the first one. <laughs> well, they're not drawing all of them in order because they're not drawing the PC-98 characters, but that's an, a rant for another day. <laughs> Oh, that's going to be the mother of all episodes. Fearing off of any current conversation we're having about PC-98, just as an aside, I wanted to talk about Zoon's visual style in PC-98. It's very cute, but it's also not as unique as his early window style. Imperishable Night is the peak of character design, honestly. Definitely. I really love Zun's art. I will fight anyone who says that it's bad because that just means that you don't have the capacity to truly appreciate it. His art, absolutely flawless. It's so good. Yeah, just proportions are not everything in artwork. Exactly. Sometimes you can have proportions and have your artwork look bland and boring as all hell. But in PC-98, his character design is quite different. Like, it's still very cute. It's shoujo manga-esque. Yeah, it's very shoujo manga-esque, and specifically the style is greatly resembles that of Takemoto Izumi. I haven't read a lot of his stuff, but I have read some of it. Apparently he's a lot more popular in Japan than he is in the West. His art is really cute and very, like, soft and bright and colorful. L- looking at the covers of his manga basically conveys the same feeling that looking at a PC-98 screenshot does to me. Mm-hmm. For some reason I always the vibe that a lot of PC-98 characters have a lot more normal clothes, simpler clothes, than even early Windows, but especially later Windows characters. Yeah. I don't know, I can't really specify. There's a lot of sailor uniforms and a lot of, you know, more modern clothes, and then nowadays Toho is like very rooted in traditional Japanese dress most of the time. You get that a lot more with the later Windows games have almost no modern clothes unless you count Sanai's, the way that Sanai's dress is cut. Yeah. It's just all very unique character focus as opposed to mass produced. Part of that is just how Zun developed as a artist and a designer. Yeah, he's definitely a better character designer now than he used to be because a lot of his older designs were certainly interesting, but they weren't as unique. Like, I get, for example, Romelia is extremely ununique. Yeah. <laughs> the first two Windows games have a lot of just Lolita fashion that is not really set off by anything interesting. You can even look at Reimu and Marisa's designs in PC-98. Reimu's just got a like traditional Shrine Maiden outfit on. Um... Marisa has the world's baggiest witch dress. Yeah, like, it was definitely something that did not actually fit her that Mima gave to her, probably. Um, yeah, it's, it's a hand-me-down. Which is cute. Yeah, that is very cute. But uh, as they grow older, they kind of develop their more unique senses of style. And their stuff actually gets more refined, too. There's more detail in Marisa's current clothes yeah. than there used to be in 
her old clothes. I that might be just a product of Zoon's art style, but he It's also twenty-five nearly years of practice. Yeah, that's what I mean. It might be a product of Zoon's practice, but he also adds a lot less extraneous frills and stuff to outfits nowadays, which is a shame. I love extraneous frills. Extraneous frills are good. I would say that the fact that our protagonist outfits are becoming more detailed while everyone else's aren't necessarily becoming so is a pretty interesting instance of character growth. I do also like that Raymond and Maurice's outfits are pretty iconic and very consistent, but also... They change. Yeah, in each game, they're different. There's something different about them, whether it's just a minor change or a pretty big one like Maurice's UFO outfit, I think, where she's got the red star and the M on her apron. The one where Marisa becomes communist. In the interest of... This is now nearly an hour and a half recording, and I'm going to have to edit this. We still haven't really talked about... Lotus Land Story, we haven't touched on Mystic Square at all. I think Mystic Square is just, it's Mystic Square. It's a very Windows-like story, but among Windows stories, it's not anything especially interesting. Yeah, pretty much. Um, I do like that it has the essentially blameless antagonist, which is unusual for Toho, in that Shinky did nothing wrong. She just gave a few careless exit visas. <laughs> Yeah, you don't see something like that until Ten Desires again. Yeah. The only villain in that game is Sega. <laughs> <laughs> we got we have to sneak in. <laughs> it's our guaranteed Sega roasting. <laughs> it's it's what she deserves. Sega's the only villain and she didn't even do it this time. Look, if she was the one running this podcast, she would be roasting herself. Anyway, Lotus Land story. I really like that. Raymond and Marisa go on a date and that one at the end. Yeah, it's just very good. I love it. Very explicitly. They're in their best clothes and they just kind of go on a date. It's very cute. Yeah, it's cute. But also I really like that Yuka is honestly a very interesting final boss. She's an extremely aggressive yokai, but she's not as dangerous unless you're some random nobody. If you are capable of using basically any magic at all, you should be fine when around her because unless she kicks your ass a little too hard, you will just have somebody who thinks that you're mildly interesting rather than who actually wants to turn you into a mist of atoms. (laughs) (laughs) To go into my own headcanon territory on how I like to read Yuka and the structure of Lotus Land story, I sort of view her through a lens of fey mythology Especially like the emphasis on hospitality. They're friendly or at least docile or friendly or cooperative. Even if you wander into their realms until you transgress against some rules or some agreement. And there's a lot of rules, which is true with Yuka too. Yuka has 16,000 rules that you don't have to cross to piss her off. But if you do manage to not cross all of them, she'll just be a completely normal person person especially because she's got these sort of nature connections so i do sort of tend to view her as sort of the older fairy ideas since we don't really know what she is yeah i don't like her as a fairy but i definitely like seeing her similar to fairies because uh, mostly i just think that she's very wisteria like and i think that a yokai wisteria would be very neat this kind of yoga that Chedi is like suggesting is more like similar to a 
like a classical fairy, but not similar to a yokai fairy. So there's a, there's a pretty big difference. Fairies in the Celtic mythology sense, not the... Uh... Yeah, I know that's what you mean. She's, she's definitely fae. I just prefer her as the actual spirit of a long-lived plant, because we have one of those, and it actually, at least before it ended up sealed, actually acted quite similarly to Yuka. It had very specific circumstances under which it would cause harm to humans. Those just were very easy circumstances to get into if you didn't know what you were doing. Yeah, oh, that's true. And I'm, of course, talking about the <laughs> The other thing to talk about with Yuka is her Mystic Square dialogue reads as, again, sort of talking trash, but being very... She's showboating, essentially, for all of, of Mystic Square. Yeah, she's very confident, and that's kind of an expression of that confidence. Yeah, she's showboating, but to the extent that she's saying, I could easily actually mm-hmm. do what I'm threatening to do. A lot of the showboating you see is literally just puffing out your feathers to make yourself seem more threatening in other characters, but Yuka is basically making an actual threat here, like, if you don't give me a good time, you're not going to have a good time. Yeah. <laughs> Did we, are we really just going to say that you're that Yuka's down there in hell telling people they're going to have a bad time? Yuka <laughs> <laughs> is... <laughs> I mean, I wasn't gonna. Are we prepared to declare that Yuka is the Sam's Undertale of Toho? But does she have any bones? <laughs> we are really That's coming debatable. full circle on this episode, aren't we? Well, I actually do think there's something to that joke. In that love, what, like going forward to the window stuff, and this is why I think Zun brought Yuka back, is that. She seems very performative in a lot of her actions. You know, yeah, when Aki yeah. says, you know, she's you know, terrible and uh, horrifying, and then her canonical experience is that she visits flower shops and buys flowers. And, you know, yeah. Yeah, from very terrified florists. <laughs> she definitely could do horrible things off screen. We just don't ever see her do them. And it could easily just be that she hasn't done anything bad in, like, 500 years, and she's just running off of reputation. I think that's actually really likely, because Aiki lectures her about not being a good yukai, so I guess she's probably... That she needs to attack people more. Yeah, she's probably slacking off on the whole violence thing. Windows Yuka is retired, and now she just tends to her garden and has a terrifying aura of menace. 500 years, and she's just running off of reputation. But is exceedingly polite in all interactions, and... People just can't help but be terrified. It's like in a horror movie, right? If you show the monster on screen in the first 20 minutes, people are going to think that's a goofy looking monster. Whereas if you build it up, you don't ever actually see the monster. That often ends up being a lot scarier. Yeah, for example, Mm. if you show a woman in a lovely red gingham dress with stupidly curly green hair, that isn't going to be very threatening. But she has a reputation that precedes her by like 500 kilometers. Yeah. Um, she she really is the sleeping terror. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Currently, even though she's awake, she's still like sleeping. You probably could tee her off to the extent that she'd become more yokai-like again, but I think that Gensokyo is really more of a place for yokai to bide their time until 
500 years and she's just running off of reputation. Well, that's actually fuel for another episode with the whole Curiosities of Lotus Asia dragon thing. Yes. Do we want to wrap this one up? Do we have any mailbag questions? So this one's related to the same topic that we've been discussing, PC-98. So this is a question from Anonymous. It says, PC-98 questions? Let's say after Wily Beast and Weakest Creature, Zun announces the next mainline game will be PC-98 exclusive. What do you think such a game might look like? What what would you want from it? It would probably look like it would have zero sales, considering that most PC-98s do not work currently, because they were made with planned obsolescence in mind. This is kind of a weird question because I'm not sure, like... I think that this is basically a joke question. I think it would be interesting to see Zun revisit the PC-98-esque development restrictions uh, if you try yeah. to do a demo scene sort of thing, which would be interesting on that front because he's matured a lot as a designer and as a developer yeah. since mm-hmm. then. I would really like a game that, that happened in the time of the PC-98 games too, but... The game for the PC-98 is ridiculous. <laughs> if we want to interpret this as like a game in the PC-98 aesthetic or tone or whatever else, yeah. I think it definitely has to have like MIDI music. A game that like ships with a built-in PC-98 emulator and is running like straight PC-98 bytecode and all that, <laughs> like yeah. all the technical limitations, I think that would be very interesting. Yeah, to, it would. To highlight it... his growth as a developer. I don't think it'll happen. That's definitely not a mainline game sort of thing to happen. He might want to make another Phantasmagoria-esque thing with an actual non-half-baked story. Because the only good part of the Phantasmagoria game's story so far have been their final bosses, which really hurts. Yeah. yeah. And their final bosses lackeys. Oh, yeah. The second question is from Tabarone front of the show. Which Tohu bun is the cutest? Raisin, Tay, Saron, Ringo, or Raisin? Which Toho rabbit do you like the most? Saron. I like her and Ringo a lot, but... Me too. Yeah. I like her design a little bit more with the fluffy dress, and I think it's always a good thing for a girl to have a large mallet. Yes. But I love her <laughs> and her dangos and competition with Ringo, and I think they're girlfriends. Mm-hmm. They Honestly, are. yes, they are. I would also say that Sayron is my favorite. I'm a huge sucker for puffy sleeves on dresses. That's just a character design element that I will always love. I'm not a person who is like super invested in most of the rabbit characters, but I do really like her design, and I like that she has a giant hammer, and I like her interactions with Ringo and yeah, the girlfriends. My favorite rabbit kind of sidestepping the cuteness question because like for some reason I don't think I really have a good answer to that. They're all rabbits. They're adorable. Yeah, my favorite rabbit would probably be Raisin the first. Obviously she gets mistreated a lot even in pseudo canon. But stuff like the medicine seller thing in Forbidden Glory, for example, that's a lot of for a character. So I also like her in the fighting game. Yeah, I think Raisin is definitely the most compelling of the rabbits. Yeah, she's the most interesting one. Yeah, sure. she she's the one with an actual character arc. So I think in terms of like who I think is the most interesting character, she's sort of the obvious winner. I think my favorite of them in terms of who I enjoy seeing in things has to be Tay. Uh, just... <laughs> Just because she's such a, <laughs> a amusing gremlin in In Above the 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 In Above
was gonna do that gag on this podcast at some point and so uh thank you for the opportunity for me to do the enoba joke um i don't even know where that comes from anymore god <laughs> it's just been my my like go-to way of talking about in above the 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 in above uh for like 10 years now uh <laughs> Yeah, but uh, she's she's one of the old yokai, which I think is interesting. We don't know too many of them. Honestly, the older the yokai, we know the more of a disaster they tend to be. Yeah, other than Yuka, who's still kind of distinguished despite this, Aya and Tei are like the really old yokai who've sort of probably seen a lot of shit. Whose ages we know. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting stuff we have to go on there. And so I, I definitely like Raisin is the strongest character because she's the one who has that sort of secondary protagonist presence. She also has the becoming unxenophobic character arc, which is always good. Yeah. 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 She's the Lunarian's bridge to the Earth in many regards, despite being the most recently on the Earth, because she's also the catalyst for Imperishable Night and Ante opening up. She's she's sort of yeah. the Sanae of the Lunarian gang. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, I had the exact same thought. And I'll uh, chime in and say that I like Seiren is probably the cutest, in my opinion, and I'll, I'll just say that I appreciate Ringo a lot because I appreciate bureaucratic characters and her job is you know <laughs> she's the, i guess supply officer or whatever for the lunarian special forces of all rabbits well she was before she quit her job to sell dongo with her girlfriend moving up <laughs> in the world <laughs> honestly jt i would have thought that the second race would have been your favorite just because of her connection to the watatsukis she's sort of suffers from being the naive exposition target for most of Silent Sinner. She doesn't really come into much on her own as a character. She just kind of acts as scenery. She's the Ishmael to the Watatsuki's much more interesting Ahabs, (laughs) in my opinion. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's a kind of a loop around. That makes sense. Well, there you have it. That's our rabbit opinions. How many is how many Sarahs did we have? Three. Three. Strict majority of the number one Toho podcast on the internet, so that's an objective truth about who the best rabbit is. Completely unassailable. Yeah. Unless you make your own Toho podcast with more people to downvote our uh, opinions. <laughs> so Indeed. I don't know if we necessarily developed a new topic to talk about next week but it will be comicette so we will probably be talking about wily beasts and weakest creature next week is definitely going to be wily beasts and weakest creature yeah and we might end up talking about just like whatever comes up in our discussions off of the podcast i feel like it's impossible to guess where we're going to go after that because i think the week after it is going to be also heavily influenced by whatever the ending of Wabak is. We'll only be able to have our real impressions on just designs of the new characters and their names and speculation about their origins and all that. And then once translation happens, we'll probably have more fleshed out opinions. Yeah, I guess the translators among us will have to work extra harder for that one. Yeah. You open this episode as the one who doesn't know PC-98, and then next week you're going to be the only person who knows Wabak. Oh, shit. It's a quality. Some literary parallels there. Ponies, don't expect me to actually know anything about Wabak next year. 
we'll see how it plays out. That's it for this episode. Send us any questions you might have about anything we talked about on the show today, anything you want us to talk about, anything Toho-related at all, or maybe even not. We'll see. But yeah, so that's the show. Thanks for listening. And from, or from all of us occultists, uh, goodbye. Are we the occultists, or is our audience the occultists? I guess. Um... Everybody who listens to this podcast is an occultist, as are we. Okay. I mean, we are broadcasting from the satellite Torifune. It would be hard for us to not be occultists. That's true. I guess we'll cut the recording in the interest of it not being two whole hours of raw audio. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) Okay, thank you for listening. See you next week. Goodbye. Bye. Goodbye. Bye. Goodbye.